greatest resource for product ideation is the customer. They will always come to you first and tell you what you need to do. Sanitizer was definitely, you know, even going back to, gosh, what was it, swine flu? It was a huge blessing back then too, but because it's a commodity product, but it's something that you can make on demand. And it definitely was our saving grace to get us through last year where you heard so many people talking about their numbers declining because of what was going on. Hi, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. This week, we're chatting with Brandon McKay and Brittany David of Snugs. We'll be exploring what it means to bring a product to market. Brandon and Brittany were generous enough to pull back the curtain and show all the work that goes into product development. From ideation to testing to marketing to sales, we'll be walking through everything that suppliers think and do to be able to answer what's new. This podcast is split into two parts. This part covers ideation and design and production, and then part two, coming out later this month, covers marketing and sales. So sit back and get ready to learn. Brandon and Brittany, why don't you give us a little bit of background about who you are and how you got started with Snugs? So Brandon, we'll start with you. I started at Snugs in 1994, quite a few years ago. So no one poked fun at me. And You were 10 years old, obviously. Yeah, I was like seven. <laughs> and when I started here, really, it was just a few people here. I think I was like the sixth employee. Snugs is a family business. So I would be second generation technically, and it came from my wife's side of the family. So I was just here kind of as a summer job. And at the time, my goal and what I really wanted to be is I wanted to be a fireman paramedic. So I took the job here for just a couple months as I was waiting for the next round to start at the fire academy and never got out of here. So it's like the mafia. Once you're in, you're in, man. Yeah. Nobody ever leaves promo. You're stuck forever here. That's right. And so getting out of here was, you know, hard. It's a really, really hard industry to get out of. I think one, because it's so outside of the fun factor, right? It's so fun. But outside of that, you become just such close friends with so many people. And a year goes by and then pretty soon a decade goes by and you're totally immersed. And I think you get accustomed to the lifestyle of it and you enjoy people and the outside of Utah personalities that you get exposed to. It's just awesome. Yeah. I called my job at Claremont my temporary job until I hit year 10. And then I was like, I think I might make this serious. And (laughs) so I'm very familiar with this is a temporary job for a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's temporary. I'm grateful that I can't be fired right now. So (laughs) (laughs) now you can really start working. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Maybe next year I'll take it serious. Yeah. One of these years. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. So Brittany, how did you get started and how did you get started with Snugs? Yeah. So I guess a decade later now, I had started at Sage back in Dallas and lived in Texas and then had a lot of friends over at Snugs, including Sidra and Brandon. And they were making some changes and growing and said, hey, why don't you come work at Snugs and move to Utah? And I was like, ha ha, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Moving to Utah, working for Snugs, totally happy and came to visit and just thought it was a really cool opportunity. And kind of like Brandon said, a decade later, I'm still here. And while it didn't start with bloodline family, it definitely feels like a family here. I took a chance and came and I was like, you know, it'll be something to learn, a new opportunity. And then you just kind of get sucked in, not only to the industry, but the company and the people. And 
the opportunity that's there that's been challenging and fun and crazy, but love it here and 10 years strong. (laughs) Your temporary job there as well. Yep. (laughs) So awesome. So for anyone who doesn't know what Snugs is and haven't seen you on the show floor with your llamas and your sneakers and (laughs) your whole look, your matching jumpsuits, can you give people an idea of like, what does Snugs do? And what is your value proposition to the industry? What do you sort of represent for what you're good at and what you accomplish? I think the unique thing about Snugs is we are who we want to be. And I don't think we've ever fallen in the channel of trying to duplicate anybody. I think we've always tried to be unique to us and focus on just us. So from the way that we present ourselves in the booth to how you say we might dress or act, I think we just try to be authentic to us and have fun and have a good time and not get caught up in the optics and confusion of what other people are doing. I think that's kind of snugs at its visual core. And I think us at kind of our ethical core is we are very strong believing in the values that we have, you know, thinking big and caring passionately and doing what's right. And I think those are awesome. Oh, and then of course, work like crazy. That's our last value. And we really just try to circle back to those values in everything we do. And if you look at, you know, just do what's right, for instance, it takes a lot of pain off of people to say, hey, should we give this discount or should we help this distributor out or what should we do here? If you just do what's right, then it's not a talking point. And a lot of people have a lot of ability and autonomy to make decisions. And of course, work like crazy as lead times get shorter and shorter and shorter every year. And like last year, a COVID year where we had the fortune and maybe misfortune of having a very hot product line, but you know, it was all hands on deck to be able to make it work and care passionately. Like Brittany said, the bad part about a family business is you run out of family really fast. And so you start bringing in people that are like family and then pretty soon they are your family. You know, there may not be a bloodline there, but you definitely care about them and you want success for them and you want them to be just awesome people and have tons of opportunity just as you would your own kid or child or brother. And then last is think big. You know, we try to think big. We try to think outside of the box, whether that's a llama in the booth or a new product feature. And like I said, we don't spend a lot of time like overly researching what others are doing. We're just trying to really say, hey, what's cool for Snugs and where should we go? So that's my nickel tour. <laughs> Your nickel tour of who Snugs is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Brittany, do you have anything to add to that? Or <laughs> I think Brandon hit it spot on. I think when people think of Snugs, especially back in the day, they think of lanyards or they then think of personal care and you go product specific. But I think the evolution that we've had is much more kind of the character of the company in kind of where we want to take the company. You know, we feel like we've got great people and a great brand, how we expand and deliver to distributors and ultimately the end users is, you know, kind of how we look at what is the future instead of staying in a box of what we have done, it's what we're going to do, but how do we stick with our values, which truly are our guiding posts to how we function, how we create opportunities, how we look at product development. I mean, those are our guiding posts of what's the next thing for us. It goes back to those four core values. Love that. 
One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you both about product development is that Snugs did start as a lanyard company. Like you went from eyeglass holders to lanyards to personal care to you've just launched a custom box option. You've gone this wide route. I kind of wanted to dig in from ideation to actual deliverables. So what's your process for adding a new product to your line? What thought process, where does it start? And how do you make a decision on sort of going, yeah, that's the one we're going to take? I think for us, the greatest resource for product ideation is the customer. They will always come to you first and tell you what you need to do. I can give the greatest example of ever. You had mentioned that we had an eyeglass retainer. The eyeglass retainer was our very first product. You put it on your sunglasses or your safety glasses or reading glasses. You hang it around your neck. Imprint panels on both sides, great billboard. But by just by chance, we were at the PPAI show in Dallas when it was at Dallas. So this is many, many moons ago. You're showing your age. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and just had the eyeglass retainer in a continuous loop around our neck with our pin for our show ID pinned through the eyeglass retainer. And a distributor walked in the booth and said, hey, you guys sell lanyards? Boom. There you go. Lanyards. And so sometimes it's just being aware of comments around you. And that one comment, would we have stumbled on a lanyard? Probably eventually, but would we have stumbled on it that day at that time? No way. And so if you open your ears to what the customer is telling you or asking you, a lot of that's just going to come through naturally. And then outside of that, you look at current trends, you look at retail trends, you look at outdoor trends kind of more is where we're probably more comfortable is saying, hey, what's trending in outdoor? What's trending in outdoor retail? What's cool, fun, hip as it relates to the West as a resort town and things like that. And a lot of our ideas probably have influence in that arena. And then of course, lastly, you're probably going to say, you know, what is selling well in promo? How does it relate to snugs? Do we have the right equipment on the floor? to be able to do the decoration. If we don't have the right equipment on the floor, what's the capital investment into that? And just try to find good price points that are healthy for our business using the talent and abilities that we currently have on staff. So I would say coming up with good ideas is relatively simple if you keep your ears open. So Brittany, for you, when you're doing the brainstorming, I know a lot of times you're standing in the booth and if someone's like, can you do that? And my answer is always like, yeah, I'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, operations loves that. <laughs> I may not be liked by many production people, so that's fine. <laughs> For you, it's like brainstorming, because I imagine you have to bring in a lot of salespeople. Like, what is the brainstorming process? For bringing in and besides like waiting for someone to be like, you do this? And you're like, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, I think kind of like Brandon was saying, I remember hearing when I first started at Snugs as we were looking to see how do we leverage our brand and expand? And I remember hearing from so many of our good customers saying, just do what you do well, stick to lanyards, stick to personal care. And what I heard was do what you do well. And then I kind of dismissed the rest of it because we are more than product. You know, we're quick turn, we're compliance, we're quality, we're our marketing engine, we're our sales engine our reliability from the production floor. You know, a lot of our stuff is USA made. So I think as we look to expand, like Brandon was talking about, you know, what capacity, what equipment do you have? And what is that demand? And what are you really trying to fix? Because I think we could bring a lot of cool stuff, but if nobody wants to buy it, 
then it doesn't end up being that cool. So part of the compass is where is the dollar spent? I mean, it's no big surprise when you look at the pie chart in the industry that like 70% or 60% is done in the top five or six categories. So when we're looking to see what are customers buying, that's definitely something that we reference to say, hey, clearly people are spending money in this category. Is that something we think we could do? You know, what is the commodity aspect that we could service or what is something that's new or original or innovative or what's not being serviced? that we think that there's a niche that we could fill based on, you know, kind of what we do well. So that's one area. And then we have tons of crazy brainstorming stuff. We have some stuff that turns out to be a bust. We have some stuff that turns out to seemingly be brilliant. We have some stuff that we get really excited about and then fall short when you put it on somebody else's ears. And then we find some really basic, easy wins in there that are just easy for us to do that we're like, why haven't we thought of this years and years ago? Because it's just a no brainer. So what were the brilliant ones where you're just sort of like, don't know, maybe, oh my God, I'm a genius. (laughs) (laughs) Sanitizer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that seemed like a side project until 2020, didn't it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, sanitizer was definitely, you know, even going back to, gosh, what was it? Swine flu. Yeah. It was a huge blessing back then too, but because it's a commodity product, but it's something that you can make on demand. And it definitely was our saving grace to get us through last year, where you heard so many people talking about their numbers declining because of what was going on. And, you know, I don't know if it's fortune and karma and a little bit of luck or what you want to call it, but we had the blessing of sanitizer that we were able, since we do things in house to source different packaging that still have that basic fill to try to meet the needs that our distributors and ultimately end users had there. So yeah, last year was as much as it's not like a product development aha. I mean, sanitizer and all the SKUs that we ended up adding was a gold mine, and it was out of necessity, not necessarily out of our own brilliance, right? <laughs> it was what can we put this fill in and get it out the door that's compliant? Yeah, like how quickly can we react to what's going on? And I think the outside of sanitizer, I think there's other product lines like Traverse or our candle line that kind of feed our artisan side where we want to make something that's cool and handcrafted and feel like we're actually contributing and making a really high-end quality product that people want and love. You know, where we're taking, you know, hides and we're cutting them out and we're hand stowing and stitching and putting rivets and grommets and I think there's that part of the business too that kind of feeds our soul of creating something that is interesting and has value and is more artistic than commodity. And those are examples of that. And Brittany could share the numbers on candles, but you know, candles are definitely in that sense and packaging and they have a lot of retail aspects to them that we're trying to bring to promo, but we actually like them. We actually like to use them in our personal lives and It brings you some satisfaction when you do these other products that may not be in the Pareto of promo, but it makes all the other stuff more palatable when you can, you know, be a little more creative. Yeah, we added our Hue line, which was custom apparel a few years ago. And it was one of those things where you look at how much business and promo is done in apparel. We're like, well, we're not going to compete against uh, Sanmar and Alpha Broder. Like, let's sell some blank shirts and get them decorated. That doesn't make any sense with where we are. 
but we know people spend money on apparel. So we were able to come up with some custom items that are full color sublimation that's something creative that still taps into that marketplace, but is very innovative for what the industry currently offers. It was something that not a lot of people were doing or were doing well. And we saw that niche and, you know, with the creative marketing that we have along with our quick turn time, it was an area that we were able to just kind of dip into that's been successful for us and continues to expand. You originally talked about like your essential oils, like bringing that into the market. And that kind of goes into where you guys were looking around Utah and seeing what happened. And then, but was the market ready? Like, do you want to tell that story of like (laughs) how you brought essential oils in? (laughs) There's... Great commodity products for promo, right? And there's great promotions for promo. And I still think that there is a a small segment for kind of that homeopathic, more healthy gift, both mental clarity and personal satisfaction types of gifts and promo. But yeah, the Zenzo oils is probably a great case study where you say, is the industry ready for a new segment? And I don't think it's at 100% ready, but there is a small subset of our industry that is ready for it. But that's another great line where we feel like it kind of feeds our soul. It's a cool line. It's uplifting. And I really enjoy the Zen line. You know, we've rebranded it a couple of times, but it is a really, really hard sell inside of promo. It's hard to get the right message across. But those who do get the message and understand it and understand that we're trying to and not just give them a decorated product with a corporate logo on it, but we're trying to give them an experience that they're really successful. Yeah. And when we started the Zen line, it was based off of essential oils because we spotted those trends in our backyard. But what we've taken from it is really the evolution into aromatherapy as a whole, which is where you see design changes and product offering changes and scent changes. I remember being on the sales side, trying to sell essential oils early on. And when somebody didn't understand what it was, you're spending the very beginning conversation on what it is. It's like, oh, this magic potion that's inside this brown bottle that, you know, when you have to educate so much up front, it makes it for a lot more challenging sell because then you're relying on the distributor to also be able to tell that same story to their end user. Then it became more mainstream, right? You see essential oils at Whole Foods, you see them in Sprouts or different grocery stores. Once that catches on and the end user actually understands what the product is, there's less education and there's more of a demand instead of a push. And so I think that's something that we want to be innovative, but it's one area that we learned we were pretty innovative and early, which I don't think was wrong. It gave us the opportunity to enter the marketplace, to do a first, to evolve what that line looked like. But it was a lot harder in the beginning than where it's transcended to, which is a very, very successful line for us now. Amazing. Yeah, we'll touch on the push and pull of sales later on that, because I do find that like sort of even just imagining pivoting your salespeople from lanyards are an easy sell. People know what they are. How do you do it to guys? Trust me, you're going to want the peppermint oil. It's going to be perfect. So I imagine that transition must have been an interesting one, even just for your team. You talked in this, what you bring in house. And I know Brittany in the past has said to me, like, you try and keep as much in house as possible. So How much of what you currently do is design in-house and how much of it do you bring in or have printed or decorated sort of imported in? Or what are your capabilities in-house? I think for in-house, I kind of mentioned in the example of Traverse where we can die cut, where we can cut and sew, 
where on the lanyard side, we can take blank material, again, cut it to length, decorate it, put the crimp on or whatever attachment point. That's kind of the vertical side of like that type of side of our business. On the personal care side, it's 100% vertical where we're bringing in raw ingredients, we're compounding them, we're putting them in the container, we're doing the QC on the container, we're printing the label, applying the label, and then shipping. So on that side of the business, you know, on the formulation, compounding, fulfillment side of personal care, it's 100% vertical. Comparable to most of our competition out there where they're just buying blank goods from someone or they're buying blank goods out of Asia and just putting the label on it and shipping it out. So we have traceability at 100% internally here on personal care. And that's, I think, kind of the essence of what Snugs is, where we're not just bringing in products to decorate, we're actually bringing in materials to cut and sew or to compound and fill to create a finished good product that we can ship out. And if you were going to build a business thesis behind it today, you probably wouldn't do it today. But if you have 30 plus years of being able to buy equipment and amortize it out and buy new equipment and improve processes and things like that, we've been able to be a USA manufacturer that has some competitiveness against the world, you know, specifically Asia, where we can be competitive with other regions of the world as far as importing goods. Yeah, I think, Kate, kind of like you said earlier, you like to say yes. And by having this stuff in-house, it allows us the opportunity to say yes a lot more often, especially without tons of pain points for operations, because it's easy, quick calls to figure out, do we have the capacity and can we get it out? And so when you have more control over the entire process, instead of having to wait, it makes things a lot faster for us, for sure. It's also interesting, your quick zip line of sort of your quick turnarounds. What I found really interesting over this past year, starting in 2020, was when the trend was like, everyone was like, yeah, I can do it in 24, 48 hours. And then all of a sudden suppliers are overwhelmed and they're like, no, it's taken back. For you, what does it mean in your production line to kind of decide, no, we can't do quick zip anymore or decide we can do quick turnarounds or this is what we're going to bring back or involve? What does that look like from a decision making on production? I think from the production side of it, it comes down to processes. So if we can take other examples or other products that we've been successful, can we duplicate the process? If not, I think we kind of take the demands from sales or take the demands from customers and say, how do we have to accommodate their need? I mean, quick ship items are just that. It's really just process driven. It's getting it from point A to point Z. And then a lot of time that sells it, the customers demanding. And can we or can we not be successful at it? Where it gets a little more interesting for snugs is that we don't create a lot of whip. So we're really trying to stay focused to our manufacturing goals of kind of being a pull manufacturer where we're producing product almost on demand. I guess the moral of the story just takes a tremendous amount of great teamwork. And we have really, really, really good team members that understand flow and how to make sales hopefully successful. Interesting. So what do you mean by create a lot of whip? Whip is like work in process. Other people just go to the shelf and pull out and unbox finished good and put a logo on it. For us, we have to actually take all the components to make a finished good, make the finished good, and then put the logo on it. So we don't stock a lot of finished goods that are just ready to be decorated and shipped. 
when you're in that brainstorming, you're like, yeah, we can start doing lanyards or we're going to bring in essential oils. What sort of considerations for your production line come into play? The way we would look at it is, are we using all of our shop time? And if we're not using all of our shop time, how do we maximize using all of it? And then really past that, it just becomes a capital investment at that point. You know, Do we need more bandwidth? Then we get more equipment. If we don't need more bandwidth, how do we sell products or how do we utilize all the available shop time that we have? And it's more complex than I think your question is. But <laughs> Get dirty. I don't care. I, it's just a, <laughs> We've got time. <laughs> it takes lots of resources. So if Brittany came in or I came in and said, hey, you know what? We want more of X. It's more than just saying we want more of X. It takes a lot of team people and team members, and it takes a lot of theory and fighting and structure. But at the end of the day, if we can create a good SOP or standardized work process, then it doesn't matter who's in the building or who's working on that line. It just goes through as normal work. So I guess we try to prohibit as many guesses at what's supposed to be the next step as we can. So we spend a lot of time, our leaders on the production floor are brilliant at created, you know, standardized work or trying to take away questions that someone might ask. And that's what gives us speed. So if people don't have to stop and think, they just know exactly what the next step is, then that's where you gain momentum and speed. I want to dig deeper on optimizing shop time and sort of the questions that people would ask. I want people to sort of realize that for a lot of suppliers, it's not a matter of grabbing something, putting a logo on it. There's a flexibility to a point. So for that, what does it mean for shop time for you? Like, how do you look at those hours? In seconds. I think you look at it in seconds. I think you look at it in flow saying, you know, how many steps does it take me to go and grab X? I mean, there are so many elements. It's a loaded question, right? And the complexities behind a lot of hand labor like on a lanyard is totally different than a lot of the questions that may be applied to a personal care product that is really pretty automated. But I would say shop time is all encompassing of a lot of theory from where you have the equipment to how you relay the data to the operator. I mean, we're constantly trying to find ways to eliminate waste. And it could be a physical motion waste, or it could be a data waste saying, hey, it took too long for the data to get to this person. Or it could be a data cutoff issue where you say, hey, if the data doesn't arrive to this person by this time, then we can't stop it. But totally loaded question. <laughs> I mean, I think I could probably talk for five years on workflow management. That you have to charge for part of your class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we look at the latent capacity too. Some of our ideas are driven from production saying this equipment isn't being utilized as much as it can be. What else can we put on it? And they challenge us. I mean, we brought in flatbed die sub in-house probably only three or four years ago, maybe. And it wasn't being utilized even eight hours a day every day. Never mind the fact that we can do up to three shifts. And so it was like, what else can we put on here? Because we have some products and they're selling well, but we have latent capacity. We have idle hands. And so sometimes that drives the product development of, well, what else could we sublimate? What are some ideas? What would sell to help finish that? Kind of to Brandon's point of trying to eliminate waste. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize a lot of the times you have a machine and your mindset is, how much money will this machine make me an hour? And what does that output look like? Like it can't be idle. It can't just do one thing. It has to be 
multi-purpose in so many ways. It has to be utilized at 100% less whatever rest time you want to give it. Yeah. So we don't look at things and say, hey, well, you know, what can we produce in an eight-hour shift? We look at it and say, how do we use 100% of this machine's output and feed it and only have it down for whatever rest time it needs? But there's some equipment here that we never rest, ever. And there's some equipment that we find in some processes, especially on the digital printing side, that rest is actually your enemy. If you rest the machine, then you find ways that it gets out of calibration and color shift. And some equipment is not meant to be rest. So we, like Brittany said, we try to look at latent capacity and we say, hey, this machine has too much rest. What other materials or products can we push through this to utilize it more? so that we get a better ROI, right? Because at the end of the day, you want equipment to get an ROI and you want it to amortize in the shortest amount of time you possibly make it. Do you have an example of where you were just like, okay, this machine needs to be doing more? Did you design a product for it or move something to it? Like flatbed sublimation, you know, Brittany had brought up. If we're only doing flatbed sublimation eight hours a day and kind of our key products at the time were maybe socks and neck buffs and things like that, what other flatbed types of sublimatable products can we put through that process that will utilize the remaining latent capacity of that? So it could be the Dysub apron, it could be a drawstring backpack, it could be other goods that will be able to utilize the remaining time on that. And then pretty soon you find out, hey, you know, you've utilized all of your time. And then you have the best conversation in the world, which is we have to have some CapEx to expand this product line because we have more demand than we have capacity. A victim of your own success almost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but those are great conversations yeah. to have. Yeah, we like those ones. <laughs> yeah. The ball is rolling, you know, it has momentum versus how do you get the ball rolling? Yeah. <laughs> so to get into your nerdiness here, Brandon, you did a presentation at CommonSkew where you said, and I want to confirm this number because I keep hearing people bring it up years after this event, is that it was 70% of POs were incorrect when they come in to you. Is that number still correct or has it gone down a bit? I would say it's probably still correct. Yeah. There is a lot of improvements through promo standards. Don't get me wrong. A lot of those improvements reside for suppliers and distributors who transact lots of volume. So there's a lot of EDI interfaces and there's a lot of seamless transactions that happen between large supplier groups and large distributor groups. But overall, we live within an industry that has a lot of smaller distributorships. So they have some off the shelf type of CRM systems or whatever they use for their own back office. It could be a QuickBooks, but then they have a lot of homegrown systems that they started with a good theory and pretty soon they're down the road on a pretty archaic, non-traditional system that's not easy to interact with. But for us, I would still say the volume of inaccurate orders is still at that same ratio. Wow. I would also say there's still some people with fax machines. So, because <laughs> we got one or two of those. <laughs> sort of like, you know what? There's other companies out there. So to kind of bring that in, 70% of your orders, those slow down production in so many different ways because it slows down what gets to the production line. So when you're developing a product, does the complexity of the ordering and the customization come into consideration when you're working on bringing in something new where you're just like, this might add too many steps, there's too much room for error? Does that play into your consideration? I don't think anymore because 
we sell lanyards that are available in width and color. They're available in multiple attachment points and they're available in multiple decoration methods. So if you take just, you know, 18 colors and five attachment points and a few different decoration methods that extrapolates out to infinity and where we make them on demand. I don't think we could have a worse product category than that in trying to mix and match. So I think as we look forward to other products that we're releasing, I can't foresee it being more complex than the road we've already been down. Well, I welcome you to come look at my product line at any time because most of the time people are like, what are the SKU? And I was like, just put a word. Like, it's too complicated. We've, we've designed it from the bottom up. Like, yeah, you are welcome to come to my factory, Brandon. Please, please. Yeah, for sure. I think it might blow your mind a little bit and not in a good way, but you're welcome. <laughs> so, so you have all these considerations into play. So, and one of the things you guys do is testing in-house. When you're doing safety testing, what does that cover for you? Like, where do you go like from top to bottom on testing for it? Or what compliance do you have to consider? There's some products that we test in-house, of course, and that's just for speed to market. There's some products that we test in-house because we can, but there's still some product tests that we outsource just like anybody else, you know, but products that we look to test in-house primarily are on kind of the Zen personal care side of our business. So burn candle testing, and then obviously testing inside of personal care. So efficacy, shelf life, those kind of things, microbial testings that we do in-house. Back to that, you know, we don't want to stock a lot of goods. We want to make them on demand. And us doing that gives us the ability to do small batch stuff. But other tests, you know, if it was a Prop 65 test or it was a cadmium test or a lead test, those things we would outsource. Yeah, I think with testing, it's something that's on the front end of our product development process that we do differently than I understand a lot of other suppliers do, where somebody might pick something to merchandise and then order it and go through the steps. For us, compliance is a big part from the very beginning to figure out the simple things, right? Like Prop 65. But like Brandon said, a huge part of our business is that personal care side. So not only do you have the stability testing for shelf life that we have to do, impurity testing to ensure that things are pure, right? You have to verify the C of A's that come in to say that what ingredient we have is actually the ingredient that we received. We have to do bulk testing on actives and that's all of this stuff just to even get it so we can start mixing and filling. Then once we do the batches, there's tons of different testing like the microbial and stuff. And it, I mean, we spent well over six figures several years ago to bring the testing in-house. One, because we do so much and promo is so small batch that we try to batch a lot of things together if we can. But like, you know, so much stuff is custom and we like to be able to be agile. But also the delay, because some of this stuff takes 24 or 48 hours, depending on what the batch is, what you're testing. And if we always had to rely on outsourcing that, it would only lengthen our lead times, which is not ideal when we're trying to move to next day shipping for the majority of our products. So it's complex and we have a lot of bodies behind that working on compliance. And I think especially in an area, that's why we do so well in personal care is it's not something that's imported. It's something that we have control. And I think peace of mind when you're looking at a product you put on your body and it gets ingested is critical. And I think that that's the story that we tell in that area. And it's an area that we are trying to always get better at. Yeah. We get feedback all the time of we got to improve this or this process and we continually evolve there. You will never be perfect. 
but you can always be better. And that's kind of the philosophy that we have there is that we are always trying to get better. And if we get critical feedback, we try to improve the process or improve the SOP so that we don't backslide. That must have been when sanitizer became so central to everything. Like that must have been helpful to have that ability to test in-house and have a quicker turnaround. For sure. But in some aspects, it was easier because the batch sizes were so massive that it cut down on a lot of testing. Yeah, I remember you talking about how you went from containers to truckfuls of tankers. Yeah, we went from drums of material to totes. They call them totes to full tankerfuls of semifuls. I just think of like, where would you put it in your factory? Even just that change in your production line of, hey, we've got to make room for a tanker. Yeah, I mean, we were blowing through a tanker a week. Oh my God. So I'm actually just curious, like, how did that look for your production line? Never shut down. Never shut down. <laughs> no. Material was in staging constantly and it was just waiting to be batched. And as soon as it was batched, it was going to fill lines oh my gosh. to fill automatically. But it was pretty remarkable. I think we'll all have some PTSD down the road of COVID 2020 at some way, whether it's your business drove off a cliff in revenue or your business was just pounded by demand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think Brittany during that time, it was just like a haze of like whether or not she was getting in contact with anyone. And yeah, it was all hands on deck. I mean, we were downstairs labeling, upstairs labeling, moving stuff around. What hands could you throw at different products being downstairs to help morale? I mean, people were working so much just because it was like our value of work like crazy. It was all hands on deck to do whatever we could and work together as a team through all of the mayhem. It's true. We were running equipment. We were not qualified to run. <laughs> we might edit that part in. <laughs> we were breaking it faster than they could fix it. Uh -huh. After a couple of days of that, we became pretty good. Uh -huh. We're calling in all resources. <laughs> I always tell people when we hire them, it's like, you're going to have to be good at sales, customer service, and color fill because you will be called in to do one of those things. Mm -hmm. If you're friends with anyone, unless you got called in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's family as far as family can reach. Yeah. <laughs> That's when the toddlers are okay with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. So just from a production surge line, this industry can be really unpredictable, which out of the blue comes like a thousand piece, 10,000 piece order, and it's needed in a rush. For that, just sort of managing the surge in your line, looking back, would there be something that you would change about that process? I think Snugs is built for the anomalies. It's not built for sustained anomalies. And COVID sanitizer was a sustained anomaly, right? It was every day, all day for six months. And... At the end of that six month period, it kind of tapered down to where it was more traditional for us and it was more sustainable for us. But, you know, hitting these peaks where you get a 10,000 piece order here or a 50,000 piece there, those are easily adaptable into our system. Yeah. It's when you constantly need it out that. Yeah. It's when 90% of your business shuts off and all of that volume goes to one per, you know, 10% of your business. That's when it was like, holy moly. We're in deep trouble. Yeah, even just sourcing containers must have been interesting. That's a another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll touch base in two years when you might be past it. <laughs> yeah, there's some parts of COVID that aren't funny yet still, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
I know at the beginning, I was like, I can't wait to read this book in five years. And I think now I'm like, I can't wait to read this book in 10 years. Like we need that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or just sort of what comes out of this is going to be an interesting thing. For us, I mean, we had some rock stars here. The manufacturing staff, a lot of the sales staff, customer service staff were just all hands on deck. But specifically the production staff, I mean, they had to deal with some hideous stuff as far as volumes and expectations. And they were still scared, right? No one knew. And they were still coming to work. They didn't have the luxury of going and hunkering down with, you know, a a pantry full of ramen noodles and not having to worry about going out for three months. They had to provide service and they had to finish product that you know, was being demanded from us. And so I think if you tip your hat, you have to tip your hat to that workforce. Those who went out in COVID that did stuff that others wouldn't do. We have just a tremendous amount of loyalty to those employees now. Yeah, I think you look back and you're just so proud of what our team accomplished. I mean, we did hard things and people made hard choices in an area that sometimes there was panic and a whole lot of uncertainty but we all persevered. And I think like Brandon said, I mean, the production floor definitely were superstars and heroes through the entire thing of the days that we had and the work they put in and the heart that they had doing it. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, I have to agree. There's amazing production people that just didn't have the luxury of Tiger King as something they would watch. And I know from a supplier side, you're always worried about like a cold kind of ripping through your factory and like, you know, making people sick and it would just, you know, Some people might be out, but COVID as a fear of ripping through your factory was a whole other alarm kind of thing. I know for myself, and we're a small operation at Claremont, so it must have been quite different with your operations, especially with that demand of just exhaustion being a factor too. Yeah. If you didn't laugh, you would cry. Yeah. (laughs) We'll make fun of this in two years. (laughs) So in terms of bringing things onto your production line that aren't sanitizer and aren't frightening, you brought on a retail brand. I mean, you've had retail brands in the past, but the retail brand of Thermos. So what did you do to bring this on as a partnership with Snugs? It's interesting. So Steve Roan, who you know and love, had a relationship with somebody that he had worked with decades ago, early in the industry, who worked for Thermos. And they kind of had some feelers out there to figure out if they wanted to make some changes in promo. And, you know, the last Jolly Expo we had before everything went to mayhem, we met with them and talked about a potential partnership. And we're like, yeah, we've talked about getting into drinkware. And it's kind of one of those things where I feel like we say timing is everything of like wanting to get into something, but having the right opportunity and the right timing. So we had some conversations, and then COVID hit. We're like, well, clearly we are not focusing on bringing on a retail brand in a category that we're not in, in the middle of this pandemic, right? But after we got out of that haze and figured out what we needed to do moving forward, the conversations picked back up. And it was something where, again, you look at those top categories and drinkware is one of them. Thermos is a fantastic brand that has over 100 years of history. It's trusted. Kind of their brand and their company's values aligned with ours. And we knew that we could decorate it. So, of course, operations is like, bring it on. We're not only going to figure out how to print it, we're going to be able to be you know, best in business when it comes to this. So I think that's just our entry point into drinkware. But it's opportunities. And I said this earlier, but I think sometimes karma, you just put it in the karma bank of random things happening. Tom Goes always talks about different collisions that you have. And it was one of those moments that 
you know, it was a pause and then it was a restart button and got into drinkware. They've been awesome to work with. We had a lot of strategic conversations that were different than how they had done promo in the past, which so far have materialized very well for both of us. So doing some things the same and some things different and finding your niche and finding something that people want. And it's something that our customers do want and I think are happy to get from us. And how did that play for just planning for you in terms of holding inventory? It would be different than sort of a vertical production and sort of you are bringing in blank stock and decorating it and sort of figuring out how to decorate too. Like what sort of efforts or work went into just machines for decoration? Like, did you have that in stock or was it something that you're like, got to go buy some pad printing? Yeah, I think for us, like Brittany said, how it evolves through Steve, it was like probably the first time that I can recall where we were sought after versus we were looking for opportunities to get other people's products, right? And I think the fact that they came to us, I think they were attracted to kind of our aura and our image. They weren't demanding that they had to go out and find a partner that was in drinkware. So I think kind of that trust factor that they gave us originally kind of gave us some momentum and some attitude to get out there and try to figure it out. And I think for us as a team, it was exciting too. It was something we had no idea how to do, but we had a very short window of time to figure it out. And if we could figure it out and they liked the outputs, then they would support us and vice versa, you know? So for us, it was kind of a challenge and it was exciting and it was kind of like an upstart business within a business. And I think for us, it just gave us kind of a giddy up in our step. It was fun. It was exciting to work on a new project that we weren't comfortable with. And at the end of the day, we found out that obviously through sales and numbers and the sales team's ability, we're like, holy crud, we're actually really good at drinkware. (laughs) We can sell this. We're talented. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think early on, we defined with them what was a win for them and what was a win for us to make sure we were the right partner for each other. Because... They're only successful if we are, and we're only successful if we have the partner that can help with that piece of it, right? And so figuring out if we were on the same page, and fortunately, we have several advocates over at Thermos that understand the promo industry, whereas I think sometimes when people bring in retail brands that don't understand the model, it's a little bit more challenging to understand pricing or to understand inventory, but especially because they sell these same SKUs into retail, it gives us flexibility into our inventory and what we can pull Our operations team, like I had said, and you asked about equipment, was like, yeah, what do we want to do? How many colors do we need? What's the direction? What's the pricing? How do we figure this out? And it's like, well, here's some ideas. And then they come back with tons of different solutions that we narrow down, figure out, you know, what do we need to start with? Where do we want to expand? What else do we add to that equipment again to not have latent capacity? And then what are the areas that we want to be either revolutionary in? You know, what's the next iteration? Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.